Amen. Yeah, man, it is great to be here with you. It's always fun to get the chance to come out and see what God's doing here at Grace Hill and how he is growing and changing this church and shaping you as a collective body uh, more and more into his image. So really, thanks for um, the chance to be here. And, you know, as a way of getting us started, we're not going to do this, but I was thinking about it, um, that if we wanted to, um, we could have a pretty robust, um, lengthy, and thoroughly depressing conversation around um, the question of what is the greatest evil in the world today, right? And the challenge in that conversation would not be, hey, I just can't think of anything. The challenge in that conversation would be there are so many contenders that it's almost impossible to figure out, um, you know, what is a, a greater evil, right? Is it human trafficking and every other form of modern day slavery? That seems like a fairly obvious contender. There's 36 million people in our world today who are living in some form of slavery. And in some ways you hear that and you're like, well, there you go. There's your winner. Um, but what about abortion? You've got to bring that into the conversation in some way, shape, or form. There would be some of us in the room that would say, yeah, I agree, too, enormous problems, but why are we not talking about racism or sexism or systemic racism? Why is it that it feels like every year, we just did Martin Luther King Day a couple of weeks ago, and there's a tendency in our culture to celebrate that, like, woohoo, spike the football, thank God Martin Luther King had that dream, and you know, check that box, and let's move on as a country, and there's a lot of us in the room that are like, no, can we have a moment where we realize that his dream has not yet been fully realized, that we still need to commit ourselves to the work of racial equality in this country? And, and that's got to be worth a mention. Well, what, what about climate change, right? What about this world that we're leaving our kids? Is that not maybe injustice on a global scale, right? Some of you, if you come from Different backgrounds, like, man, you're just talking like an American up there. Because if you were to go to so many parts of the world, corrupt governments would be the number one answer. Where it would be like, yeah, it's the way that our leaders use their positions to enrich themselves and exploit us and oppress us. And that's got to be there, right? So, I mean, you, by the way, you could add to the list. Um, but we'll, we'll just stop there because I feel like everybody's thoroughly depressed. You're like, wow, yeah, that was, that was fun. Really glad I got up and came to, to church. Now I feel ready for Super Bowl Sunday. Let's go. Um, this was great, right? Now, my point in doing that is not to depress us. Um, it is maybe to orient us to the real world, right? Because um, the goal of church is not to come in here and to escape from the real world and to kind of put spiritual blinders on for an hour, hour and 15 minutes and just kind of pretend like everything's great out there and everything's great in our families and everything's great in here and woo, we'll just sing some Jesus songs with Nick and kind of have a little break from reality and then go back to the real world um, in a few minutes and leave all the Jesus stuff behind here, right? We want to come together to consider what does it mean to follow Jesus in a world that is really broken? What does it mean to follow Jesus in a world that has astonishing challenges, challenges that at times seem insurmountable, right? We want to have that kind of mentality, but I also want to suggest that so many of those problems and so many others that we could have put on the list, one of the main contributing factors in there is that we as the church struggle to understand what this idea that Nick mentioned a few minutes ago in his prayer of the Imago Dei, what it really means. 
things, right? It's one of those things, by the way, that if you're brand new to church, this is going to be a pretty shocking description of humanity, the way that the Bible talks about you and me. I think you're going to be phenomenally encouraged by what you hear Now, the majority of us that we've grown up in and around the church, even come to church for a while, and you've probably heard this phrase, right? That man and women were made in the image of God. You know that image of God in Latin is Imago Dei, right? There's people that name their church Imago Dei. Like, it's a thing. It's not like you've never heard that phrase before. It's not that you've never considered that idea before. But I think sometimes we just kind of take it as like sort of hallmark spirituality of like, oh, yeah, that's what a lovely thought, um, you know, this image of God thing. I think that's just biblical shorthand for human nature. That's just kind of in the book of Genesis. And I don't even know how I feel about Genesis in general, particularly the creation parts in particular. So I don't really think about it. So let's just kind of move on. And that's what I want to fight against this morning. I want to kind of freeze us right on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we discover this foundational truth about what it means to be human. Right, We find the very first piece of information that the Bible gives us about what it means to be a human being. And if you're going to construct any sort of biblical anthropology, any sort of understanding of, okay, according to the pages of Scripture, what does it mean to be a human being? You have got to start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make Man, other translations will say mankind, humankind. Come, let us make man and woman in our image after our likeness. It's the first thing that we are ever told about what it means to be a human being. That that God is coming in early in the story of creation, early in the story of God's plan in the world, and making sure you and I know that there is a lot more to our humanity than just the result of a biological process. Right? There's a lot more to the story of you than just a decision that two people made, whether they were married or not married or knew each other, or didn't know each other. You're way more than that. You're way more than the result of a biological process. You were, Psalm 139 that we read earlier, knit together in your mother's womb, that you were designed by God. Not just in an abstract sense, but you were lovingly uniquely, individually designed by the same God who knows how many hairs are on your head as you sit here this morning. There's intentionality behind you, right? There is divine design living inside of you. You are made in the image of God. And for some of us, we just need to let that wash over us because we've never had that view of ourselves. Right? We've never seen ourselves in that context. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're believing that for a bunch of other people in the room and you're like, oh, I can see how she's made in the image of God and I can see the way he's made in the image of God, but I just don't think I've gotten there yet. I just don't know that that applies to me. You're believing that lie. You're holding on to that lie. And maybe one of the biggest things I could do this morning is just fight back against that and say, no, every single human being throughout the course of human history is made in the image of God. And you are absolutely not the asterisk in the Bible. 
It's not like, oh, humanity's made in the image of God. Oh, except for Joe at Grace Hill. Could somebody make sure Joe knows about that? Like, there, no, there, there, there is no footnote. There's not like, all right, you know, please see the appendix at the back end for a couple of exceptions and disclaimer. No, you're made in the image of God. Now, that idea, as beautiful as it is and almost kind of as comforting as it is even when I say it, is something that the church has really struggled with over the last 2,000 years. This is not an area where we have consistently gotten it right. If anything, this is an area where we have consistently gotten a little closer to what it means. But if you were to go back into early church history, we're not going to do a lot, little bit of this. It would be like a little three or four minute um, church history Bible nerd aside. So you can either tune me out or, or lean in if that's your thing. Um, but if you were to go back into church history and look at the early fathers, you would realize that one of the greatest theological blunders they made was a misunderstanding understanding of the image of God, right? This whole Imago Dei idea. They were actually way more influenced by Plato than they were by the Bible, right? And if you're a PhD in philosophy, forgive me as I do a little bit of philosophy here, but I think it's a fair summary of Plato to say that he had sort of this dualistic understanding of the world, that there's kind of a spiritual reality and then there's everything else. And what the church fathers did is they applied this Imago Dei thing to the spiritual side of us. And they're like, yeah, that's kind of all the spiritual stuff, but it has nothing to do with the rest of life. You know, cue uh, 13th centuries of the church where we didn't always do the best job advancing an idea of ethics and what it looks like to care for our fellow humanity and, and all of that, right? We just saw it as kind of this spiritual reality. Then Thomas Aquinas shows up in the 13th century. He kind of founded a movement called scholasticism. He was the first guy really to start thinking about, hey, you know, we should be able to get our brains and our hearts and aligned together and we should be able to think good thoughts about God. And he sort of expanded this idea of the Imago Dei. And he said, yeah, it's kind of the spiritual core of who we are, but it's also our rational capabilities. We're able to think and that's gotta be somehow in the image of God. So it expanded a little bit more and then it kind of stayed there for a good long time until the early 19, or 20th century, early 1900s, when a Swiss theologian started to pay a little bit more attention to that. Hey, come let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. And started to say, huh, that's an interesting thought. There's got to be something about this that is related to the fact that um, God is three persons in one spirit and it is God in community making man in community and somehow our image of Godness must connect to our ability to uniquely relate to God and our ability to uniquely relate to each other. So, you know, by the early 1900s, we've kind of got our spiritual side in the mix and we've kind of got our intellectual rational side in the mix. Then we start to bring our relational side in the mix. And it's probably been in the last hundred years that we've started to bring a functional side into the mix of, wait a minute, this also has to do a little bit with our purpose in the world. And I think the best way to understand that is not, hey, pick your camp and who you're going to go with. Are you an Aquinas kind of person? Are you an early church fathers? Who got it right? I think the reality is that all of those different contributions help us flesh out a robust understanding of what this Imago Dei is about. The Imago Dei gives us a holistic understanding of our humanity, right? That we are spiritual, rational, relational, physical and emotional beings with a clear purpose in the world that God created. Right? 
That's really the picture of who we are, and we could pick that apart so many different ways. But all I want to do with us this morning is to look at the first thing that God tells us about what this Imago Day means in our life, right? He goes on to say, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Very next sentence, very next thought, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's God saying, hey, let, let us make man in our image. Okay, here's a world. Go take care of it. Right? That, that clearly there is something about this Imago Day thing that God wants us to use to shape our understanding of our purpose in the world. Because that's where he goes first. Right, He doesn't go initially to, okay, so let's talk about what it means to be a relational soul with the ability to connect. I believe that is true, absolutely. Right, Let's talk about the dignity and value that every single human being possesses. Clearly, that is true. That's one of those miracles of the gospel that in the eyes of God, both the drug-addicted prostitute and the career missionary have the same dignity and have the same value before God. That is absolutely true. But the first place that he goes here's a world why don't you go take care of it he talks about it in terms of his purposes behind our lives and that's what we're going to spend our time trying to unpack a little bit this morning right we're going to see that this idea of the imago day points to three primary purposes in our lives the first of which is to create and th this one should be fairly clear for us to see, but you got to look at it this way. This, this truth, this Imago Dei thing happens in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, which is really, 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 really early in the pages of the Bible, right? If you want to follow along, you just have to open up and go to page 1, right? We don't even have to, at least in my copy of Scripture, we don't even have to turn the page to get there. So that begs a question for me, okay, if God thinks we're ready for that truth, that Imago Dei thing by verse 26 of the first chapter, what do we know about God at this point in the library of scripture? I mean, no, no doubt there's going to be another 65 books coming after Genesis that's going to round out our picture of God. But by this point, 26 verses in, what has the Bible told us about God? And the answer is pretty clear. You can bookend it by looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which many of us know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then go down to verse 25. All right, what's Genesis 1.25 have to say? And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. What we've seen to this point in scripture is a God who makes things, a God who brings things to life. We have seen a God of limitless, joyful creativity. We have seen a God who delights in his creation, a God who is making, who's bringing things to life and, and who's enjoying 
the whole process, right? That is so different than the other gods that the people in the ancient Near East would have heard of at that point. It's a totally different starting point for humanity. But we see by verse 26, wait a minute, part of what this has to mean to be made in this image of God is that we are also made to create, right? That we are made to play a creative function in the world. Now, Moses is going to apply that. Moses is the guy that wrote the book of Genesis. He's going to apply that very literally in one specific area in verse 28. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? It's one application of the idea that we were born to create. And it, it's, it's a good one, but clearly being made in the image of God means more than just go have babies. Right? It also means go plant a garden. It also means go find joy in cooking. It also means go write a blog, go Build a shed, go create a new software package, go add value to people's lives by creating a great customer service experience. It means go start a coffee shop. It means go write a new curriculum. Go create something with your life. I mean, part of what's happened in our culture is that we've reduced this idea of being creative down to a certain personality type, right? We talk about creativity, right, in terms of skinny jeans and lattes and the perpetual inability to be on time, right? We're just like, oh, he's just creative. And I'm like, no, he's just late. Um, right? No, he may be dressed from head to toe in black, but, you know, whatever. But that's what we've done, right? We're creativity, it's like, oh, you know, what a nice thought. You know, maybe you and Nick could go have a little conversation because he sings and he's all artistic and he's late every once in a while. Um, and you, obviously, just you're a pastor, so God only knows what you do all week, but you probably sit around with a latte and write sermons and blogs and stuff like that. So you guys could go have uh, a nice little conversation about being creative and it'd be so fun for you. But I have what's called a real job. And I use Excel for most of my day. I'm an accountant. When I get creative, it's called illegal. I'm not unsympathetic, by the way. I'm a pastor. I'm a theologian, right? If we say, oh, wow, he has a creative understanding of the Trinity, that's just code for he's a heretic, right? So I, I get it, right? We're not looking for like, wow, what a creative view of the gospel of John. No, that's not exactly the gold standard in preaching. But some of you are like, listen, thank you for the go plant a garden, and maybe I'll try to enjoy life as I'm making dinner tomorrow night, as impossible as that sounds with three small kids, but okay, I'll try to carry that one with me tomorrow. But for crying out loud, I analyze data and then I put it into a PowerPoint and my company has given me a style guide. I don't even get to pick the font. I have to match the font and then I present it to people who may or may not be paying attention. That's my day. So thank you, image of God. Where's the image of God in that meeting? I don't know where it is. Look, come on, we've got to have a bigger vision of what it means to be creative. Some of you are going to go paint at three in the morning. God bless you. 
And some of you are going to go get eight hours of sleep and you're going to lead a team of people tomorrow morning. They're going to be sleep deprived because they stayed up late watching the Super Bowl, even though it's probably not a good game. And you're going to have to figure out how do you get them to work together tomorrow morning? How, how do you get them to get ready for that client meeting that actually has a lot more riding on it than they might even realize? Don't tell me that doesn't take creativity. Don't tell me that you're just not a creative person. You are. God has designed you to create something in this world, right? He has designed you to advance this human project. And part of what you have a theological responsibility to do is figure out what does that look like in your life. Oh, I get it. It's going to look radically different for you as it does from me or it does for my wife who stays home with our three small kids or does for somebody who's in college or somebody who's in retirement. I get it. We all have a different version. But you got to do some work to figure out what's that thing that God is asking you to do? What's that purpose? What, what is that invitation from God to live into um, what the theologian Francis Schaeffer describes, right? In a book that he wrote called He Is There and He Is Not Silent, he writes this, the Christian should be the person who is alive, whose imagination absolutely boils, which moves, which produces something a bit different from God's world because God made us to be creative. Limitless ways you can live that one out, but it is part of how God made you. It's part of what it means to be made in his image, to be made in his likeness, right? Part of what it means to be made in his image and likeness is kind of the second purpose to relate to one another. Kind of alluded to it earlier, but let us make man in our image after our likeness, plural. There's this great question, who's God talking to? What's going on up there, right? Um, there's some people that tell you he's talking to the angels. There's some people that would tell you he's talking to sort of a divine council. I would be in the theological camp. I'm pretty sure it's where Alan would land too, that um, this is the first evidence of the Trinity in the Bible, that this is God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sort of having a conversation among the Godhead saying, come let us make man in our image, which means that God has only ever existed in the context of relationship. Right, that, that God is this inherently relational being and that to be made in his image means um, that we are inherently uh, relational beings. Right, That we have this unique capacity to connect with him and we have this unique capacity uh, to connect with one another. And that when we are deprived of that, we, we start to lose or something of our humanity, right? That, that, that's why you go into any maximum security prison and the worst thing that can happen to one of those inmates is solitary confinement. Right? I, I don't care how introverted you are, right? There's nobody that's like, oh, dream come true. Right? I mean, maybe, maybe for the first 24 hours, I'm a little bit more on the introvert side. I could probably go 72 hours and be like, this is awesome, just me and myself. But after that, it doesn't last very long, right? 
My, my wife and I are slowly working our way through a show, I think it's on Amazon or something, called Alone. It's on the History Channel. It's where they drop off, like, it's like Survivor, but they drop people off on uh, Vancouver Island with, like, 10 supplies and see how long they can just survive up there on their own. They don't give them a film crew. It's none of this Bear grills nonsense. They just send them up there by themselves with, like, some GoPros, and they start to film themselves. And we're just in the part of the season where, like, they've all figured out, those that have survived, they've figured out how to feed themselves and they're making shelter and all that. But about 14, 15, 16 days in, they're all pressing up against this like, wow, I haven't had any human contact in two weeks and I'm starting to lose it a little bit. That's the image of God right there on the History Channel. Right there, Amazon Prime coming through. Now, I think you get that. I think we know that, right? You don't need a preacher to stand up here and tell you that my purpose in bringing that one up is sometimes when we get into these conversations about God's purpose for our life, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we instinctively look for these kind of burning bush sort of moments where, you know, we just have this sense that God delivers to us a clear message of here's what I've asked you to create. And I want you to go start a company. Or I want you to move to Amsterdam for the sake of the gospel or whatever you're waiting for God to whisper to you. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, I pray that some of you would have that kind of experience with God this week. Right? As you think about what has God called you to create, there might be some light bulbs that go off. There might be some things that start to come together where you start to walk with a little bit of a sense of like, no, I do have a greater sense of what God is speaking to me about what I'm here to do in the world. That's great. But if that burning bush moment doesn't happen this week and you're like, but I'd still like to make a little bit of progress. I'd still like to have a little bit more clarity about my purpose in life. The first thing I would do is look to the relationships that are already in your life. Look to the people around you, right? A lot of my purpose in life is tied up in, in a good way, tied up with the fact that I'm married to Laura and I'm Jack and Aiden and Emma's dad and I'm the pastor of Restoration City. And those people define a lot of God's purpose for my life right now. There's other things that I do and, and all of that. But my fundamental understanding of my purpose starts right there. I think sometimes we're waiting for these kind of burning bush moments when God's just inviting us to look at the people that we're already in relationship with. Right? Rather than going for a long walk in the woods, what if you just spent some time and said, hey, God, what is your purpose in my life for the people in my community group? How, how are you trying to use me to shape the other men and women who I meet with once a week outside of Sunday morning? What, what are you up to there? How, how do they shape my purpose? How do the serving opportunities in this church shape God's purpose for your life? How, how do the things that Alan and Nick and Aaron stand up here week after week and say, hey, we could use some help here. Hey, we could use some help there. So, some of us are holding out for God to come speaking to us in a minute. And I'm like, no, he's going to speak to you through the church bulletin. You're like, oh, really? I'd like him to light a shrub on fire. Really? Oh, yeah, you wouldn't. That'd be terrifying. It's easier just to do, do what Aaron says. Like, Right, but come on. That I mean, we sometimes we, we hold out for these moments and we don't look to the people who are right around us. Maybe maybe that'll help unlock some purpose this week. But the one I really want to get to and be able to have a few more minutes to talk about is purpose number three to curate, which is just another way of saying to take care of, but it rhymes with the other one, so it's gotta be right. Um, 
Right, you get extra points for that in preacher school. Um, we talked about this earlier. Let's go back to 126. I know you're like, man, one whole sermon out of one whole verse of scripture. I know, but it's a really big one. Um, let us have dominion over the fish and all that stuff. That word dominion in Hebrew is radah, um, which is a not uncommon word in Hebrew, but it's not usually um, used to talk about fish and birds and all of the other stuff. It's almost always used to talk about political authority, right? It's almost always used to talk about ruling, to talk about taking charge, even to talk about conquering and subduing other nations. It's a statement of authority. It's a statement of leadership. It is a concept that people in the ancient Near Eastern world would have been really familiar with. Right, Because we live in a day and age today, if you're brand new to the church, you probably have not heard somebody say that you're made in the image of God. You've probably not heard somebody describe themselves that way. Right? I don't care, the most narcissistic person that you work with is probably not, you know, got it on their cubicle right under their five strengths finder results and the image of God, Right? Now, maybe you work with different people. Maybe you're like, no, that's my boss. Okay, well, God bless you. Um, but I doubt that most people are sitting there being like, yeah, let me just tell you I'm the image of God. Right? We just don't talk that way today. Right? The only way you're going to hear that kind of conversation is if you get around Christian circles because most of our world is on a project to convince you and me that we're far less than that. Not that we're far more than that, that we're far less than that. But you know, a couple thousand years ago, that idea was pretty common, but it was always the political leader. It was always the king. It was always the governor. It was always the dictator who described himself as the image of God. It, it was the sense of, of course you're going to obey me. Of course you're going to submit to me. Of course you're going to follow my rules. Of course you're going to do what I'm going to tell you to do because I am the king as the image bearer of God. I am ruling over you with divine authority. God has made me king. God has made you subject. Therefore, you need to obey me. Therefore, you need to do what I tell you to do. Therefore, no questions out of you. Just keep your head down and do what you're told to do, and it'll all go well with you in life. Right? And even back then, one of the ways that a political ruler would advertise their authority over a group of people was by placing physical images of themselves around their city, their territory, their kingdom, right? It's kind of like, you know, a dog marks his territory one way. Political leaders tend to do it by posting pictures of themselves up there, which is, by the way, it's still true today. Right? Have you ever noticed, if you've ever traveled outside the U.S., have you ever noticed the more autocratic the regime, the more pictures of the leader there are around the city? I mean, if you just want the free layman's guide to totalitarian rule, just notice how many pictures of the president you see before you leave the airport. The more pictures you see, the more you're like, uh-oh, we really better obey the police here. Right? It still happens today that people put their physical image there as a sign of their rule and a sign of their reign and a sign of their authority. So this image of God idea a couple thousand years ago was one that people were familiar with, but they were used to hearing it in terms of their own subjugation. They were used to hearing it um, as a tool of oppression. They were used to hearing it in terms of somebody else who had his boot on 
their throat. And all of a sudden, God comes in and he says, let's change the way we understand that. Let's flip that and not say that it's the king who has the image of God. It's not the distant tyrant who has the image of God. It's you. You're made in the image of God. Every bit as much as that political leader. Every bit as much as that person of influence. Right? Jerry Johnson says it this way, the biblical picture of Imago Dei means that all human beings, not just kings, possess special royal status as God's appointed stewards over the earth. By virtue of mankind's ruling over the rest of God's creatures and earth, every member of the human race somehow represents and reflects the sovereign Lord of creation. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what our lives could be like? That's what I'm saying. We can't just say, oh, Imago Dei, yeah, that's a beautiful thought. Love it. Thank you. Going to hold on to that. We need to wrestle with its implications in our lives, right? The implication that every one of us as members of the human race somehow represent and reflect the sovereign Lord of creation. That we somehow possess special royal status as God's appointed stewards. I mean, that almost sounds so lofty that we're uncomfortable with it. We're like, really? Can I get a theological review on that? Like special royal status as God's steward? I don't know, man. No, that's exactly what it means. And it's a statement of our dignity and it's a statement of our value, but it's also a statement of tremendous responsibility. Right, a couple of years ago, our church is in um, kind of South Arlington right around Crystal City, but my wife and I were living in Delray, kind of right down the road there. We got away with that when we had two kids, and we found out number three was coming, and we had to move um, uh, and get a little bit further out of that neighborhood where you could afford a third bedroom. Um, but while we were there, we living happily in a little two-bedroom row house, um, there was a pretty major snowstorm that came through about four years ago. Um, remember, like, not, not the, like, ooh, half inch of school and, you know, half inch of snow and school's canceled for three days kind of nonsense that we normally do around Northern Virginia. Um, I'm from Syracuse, New York, so I feel um, just entitled by birth to judge how we react to snow. Um, I'm just obnoxious about it, and I, I don't even really try to apologize. Um, uh, so I, I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. But four years ago, I mean, I'll say this as a New Yorker, as an upstate New York person, as a snow belt kind of person, there was a real snowstorm in D.C. D.C. is so transient, there's about six of you that probably lived here um, back then. But uh, the six of you that were here, you remember what I'm talking about. It shut the city down for a week. And it was forecast. Everybody knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was going to be bad. So everybody in my neighborhood, knowing that the storm was coming, they all got their cars off the, the street, because we park on the street there. They kind of drove through the back alley and parked right in behind their little patio, right? It's kind of like you get a row house and a little strip of asphalt that we'd call a patio. And then behind that, there was just some space where you could park a car that we would call a driveway, optimistically, rounding up. Um, but everybody put their car back in their driveway. And I was there. I was like, that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't be doing that. No, no, no. I moved our car from our driveway out onto the road. And they're like, you are such a like, have you never seen snow? Are you from Alabama? What's your deal? And I'm like, no, no, I am from New York. I know exactly what I'm doing. And they're like, no, man, you're going to get plowed in. Like, and I'm like, no, you're right. You are right. Our street is going to get plowed because we live right down the road from a firehouse and they're going to plow our road and we're going to be a priority and it's going to be great. And guess what? That plow is going to come through and for about the first 24 hours, life is going to be miserable for me because I'm going to be out there digging out cars and, you know, shoveling, all that 
wet kind of stuff. But it's cool because we have two small kids. So being outside shoveling snow is not all that bad. Right? I'm like, I, babe, I'll probably be back after bedtime, right? I'll just be out there shoveling and digging. And, and I did. I worked hard for um, about 24 hours trying to keep up with it. And plow would come through and it would be a disaster. But about 12 hours after it stopped snowing, I was dug out. And sure enough, they plowed the road. And I was there and I had a little spot and I was great. And I was like, hon, do we need anything from the store? Because I was so excited that we could go somewhere and all my other poor fool neighbors couldn't. And I was like, what do you want, babe? Target, it's on me. You know, which is such a stupid thing to say. But I'm like, yeah, it's on, let's go, um, Target. And she's like, okay, like, you know, hey, go ahead and get this stuff. Um, I drive out, go to Target. I'm gone literally 15 minutes. I come back and some other person has parked in my spot. It's the closest I've ever come to needing to be fired as a pastor. It wasn't like a wild weekend in Vegas. It was that. Um, I was like, oh, let me temporarily resign, deal with this, and then go back to vocational ministry, right? Found out who it was, um, politely asked them. We, we worked it out. Um, let's just leave it at that. Um, part my car, felt great about life. We're up and running. Our family is doing great. Um, all of my neighbors, though, they parked in the driveway in the alley. And they started to have this discussion about when the city was going to come and dig them out. And I'm there and I'm like, do you live in the same city of Alexandria that I live in? I don't think help is coming. And they're like, no, man, they'll dig us out. I was like, you seriously? They're like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, they'll send a plow back here. I'm like, are you kidding me? The trash truck, you know, can barely get back. There's not a plow coming through the back alley. There's no plow coming. They're like, well, then they'll send people. I'm like, no, no, nobody's coming. You're going to have to do this for yourself. They're like, no, man, somebody, I mean, it's got to be, somebody will do something. There's no way we have to shovel our own snow. Do you know what our taxes are? I'm like, yeah, obscenely high. And you're going to have to shovel your own snow. And they held strong, man, for like 48 hours. Like, I, I, I probably, probably actually closer to 72. I mean, they certainly weren't even going to think about it until the government opened back up. Um, I mean, they weren't even going to give it some thought. But then all of a sudden, there was a day where they kind of gave in. And they were like, man, help's not coming. And they got out there and they, they started to dig. Right? And you're like, man, did you, did you go help them? Man, that would have been a good idea. Um, that would have made for a much better sermon illustration. But no, I went to work because um, I was dug out. Um, and they had to go dig out and they had to do their thing. And I'm not saying that to pick on the city of Alexandria or to pick on my neighbors at all. But I feel like in some ways that represents the way that our culture operates. We're great at pointing out injustice. We're great at pointing out what needs to happen. We're great at seeing the need. We're great at diagnosing the problem. But we seem to have this cultural bias inside of us of like, yeah, but somebody else will fix it. Somebody else will do it. Somebody else will come work on that. Somebody else will come dig me out. Somebody else will go sweat to set up on a Sunday morning. Somebody else will deal with the human trafficking thing. Somebody else will deal with homelessness and Herndon. Somebody else is going to deal with illiteracy. Somebody else is going to deal with the number of people in this school that need a tutor. Somebody else will deal with it. My job is just to note the problem. Oh, and if I'm super spiritual, I'll pray about the problem. But inevitably, in result of my prayer, God will send somebody else to do it. 
Somebody else will handle it. There's got to be a program for that. There's got to be an agency for that. There's got to be a government entity. There's got to be somebody else who comes and does something about this. And for us as the church to realize that we are designed to be the somebody else, that we're the ones that God looked at and said, no, you are made in my image and you have been given a specific role to play in this world, to create, to relate, but also to take care of my world. And yes, you're like, wait, I thought this Imago Day thing applies to everybody. It does absolutely apply to everybody. But it also applies in the way we live our life most, most directly to those of us who would put ourselves in the category of followers of Jesus Christ because of what Colossians 1.15 tells us. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn of all creation. Do you see a difference between this? Man is made in the image of God. Jesus is the perfect image of God, right? Our hope in life is not that in our own strength, and in our own power, you're going to go out and live this beautifully creative, relational, curate life. You're going to go solve problems. You're going to go bring new things to life and be a relational wizard all in your own strength. Because we know that doesn't work. right? We know everything I talked about Genesis 1 happens before the fall in Genesis 3. Now, the fall does not relate, erase the image of God from our lives. But it starts to bury it and it starts to obscure it under this thing called sin. Sometimes it obscures the image of God so deep down inside of us that we have trouble seeing it even in our own selves. But the message of scripture is that God did not leave us in that position, but he sent his son, the perfect image. Hebrews will say the exact representation of God to go and to die in our place, to go and to die on the wood of a cross, to go and to pay the price for our sins so that he could begin to remake us even more into the image and into the likeness of Jesus. Right? That God is the one who is at work in you. Yes, because you have tremendous dignity. Yes, because you have tremendous value. But also because if you are a Christian, you have the spirit of God inside of you. And that spirit is saying to you and to me, I mean, you have work to do in the world. You have a purpose. There's things I want you to go create. There's relationships I want you to nurture. And yes, there is a world full of problems out there. And somebody's going to have to do something about it. Somebody's going to have to do more than just amen at the end of the sermon. Somebody's going to have to do more than just applaud at the end of the talk. Somebody's going to have to do more than just post something on Facebook. Somebody's going to have to raise their hand and say, okay, I can't do everything in that area, but I can do something. And I'm going to leverage my life in that direction. Because Jesus came and he offered his entire life as a payment for my sin. And I'm going to go offer my life for the good of others. That's what this is about. Right? This isn't just a little pat on the back. This isn't just a, hey, you're good enough, you're smart enough, people like you. That's not it at all. It's you're made in the image of God. And he said, here's a world. Go take care of it. And the question is whether we're going to say, I'm in. Or we're going to say, that's nice. Somebody else will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this image of God thing in my own life, it's beautiful and it's challenging. So challenging. 
Because it means that complacency has got to go. It means that just sitting back and enjoying church has got to go. It means constantly looking around and asking how everybody's serving me has got to go. It means you're calling each one of us in some way to pick up our towel and to go serve other people. Not because we're trying to earn your approval, because we already have your approval through what Jesus has done on the cross. So God, my prayer for us this morning is that you would just help us to embrace our identity, that you would help us to embrace our purpose. And right now, Father, I'm asking you that by the power of your spirit, you would just connect that to each of our hearts. God, I believe that your spirit has the ability to take that massive truth and to drop it straight into the middle of each one of our lives. God, show us what you would have us do in response to your word this morning. Show us how you would have us live out your image in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.